Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Tuesday, January 17th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 55. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. Polycultured is looking forward to sharing our farm offerings with you, so if you're interested in our work, you can visit our site at www.polycultured.com. A food forest, sometimes known as a forest ecosystem or a forest garden, is a design plan for growing food that focuses on resilience, food security, and ecological harmony. This model for a sustainable permaculture system brings food right to your doorstep, saves water and nourishes the water table, protects against pathogens and pests, attracts pollinators and other animals without decimating your crops, and ensures the continued success of the forest for years to come. I want you to think about your favorite place in the woods. When there is enough time and the right conditions, every ecosystem trends towards becoming a forest. Ecological succession is the concept that an ecosystem stabilizes into a self-sustaining climax community that will live in perpetuity, barring any major disturbances. A food forest uses nature's design as a model, while maximizing vertical space and encouraging interrelationships to form. Altogether, your various species produce a system that's easy to manage and curate, while being relatively self-maintaining compared to having an annual plant-dominant garden. It isn't all about us, though. The benefits of food forests go far beyond human use, as these techniques and designs help remediate land, encourage biodiversity, and create habitat. In this case, doing less with the right design is doing more. Any discussion on food forests must begin with the proper context, that indigenous societies globally had forms of land stewardship that effectively were food forests. We don't often hear about them because the idea of a food forest was so foreign to European colonial invaders that they didn't even recognize these intentionally curated forests as providing clear agricultural and ecological advantages. Indigenous land management is an enormous topic worthy of deeper scholarship, but in brief terms, indigenous people were, for thousands of years, increasing plant diversity, availability, and productivity through numerous techniques in every geography imaginable. Some of these techniques included forms of design and water management, fertilizing, weeding, terracing, controlled burning, transplanting, pruning, and coppicing. The central barrier to learning more about historically managed ecosystems through historical records is the fact that there is a fragmented and misleading history told through white European and colonial science, history, and anthropology, which failed to recognize these complex food forest systems and used racist, primitive tropes to denigrate indigenous land stewardship practices. And ultimately, this was to enrich their own interests, including stealing land. In the contemporary, we also have trouble reconstructing the way that land was used, because in some cases it has been centuries since indigenous control over the land has ceased. Another difficult element to contend with is that indigenous management practices so closely resemble natural processes. Still, there are many archaeological village sites where forest gardens are still present, though conifer forests tend to encroach on them when they're no longer maintained. 
it's been observed that such encroachment is slowed by the presence of forest garden ecosystems and makes the flora contained within less susceptible to disease. This could be due to a number of factors in the soil, such as the long-term relationships between various living organisms in the system, such as in mycorrhizal associations and the formation of plant-based antibiotics, which provided complex chemical protection. Scientists have now studied that logged forests that had no indigenous land stewardship were having a much harder and slower time regrowing and that they did not have the same resilience as a food forest even if that food forest had been unused by people for over a century. It's very impressive. There are many reasons why understanding historic food forests is of interest to us today, and scholars and scientists are learning how contemporary plant community structure has been altered by the presence of indigenous food forests. Scientists have found that indigenous food forests can provide 150 years or more of high functional and taxonomic plant diversity, directly contrasting with human-colonized land uses, such as industrial agriculture, which has a negative impact on the ecology for years to come. There is no doubt that indigenous people's land management practices and design work have contributed to the way that plant communities today are thriving, and that is precisely this design that created the resistance to infection and ecological collapse over time. The presence of indigenous food forests in all different climates and geographies teaches us that ecological and human interaction can build relationships, honor long-standing traditions, and protect ourselves and other creatures from the global pressures of climate changes and southern weather events. This flies in the face of many sophomoric outcries that humans are bad for the environment and calls for a need to, quote, rewild the landscape. Quite the contrary. When you look at food forests as the example and what they can provide for many generations in the future. Racist European anthropology was disrupted by the material evidence of food forests because the ideology is formed from a linear timeline of development of Western agriculture as a way of measuring complex societies. Quote, hunter-gatherers were propagandized by such anthropology to be aimless, constantly starving, consumed with survival, devoid of culture, and primitive. In actuality, indigenous agricultural design was far more complex, resilient, and ecologically sound than forms of monocrop agriculture. Food forests make it obvious that not only did indigenous people have large populations, even as they hunted game, they didn't move far from their food source, and in fact, they planted trees that attracted the types of game they enjoyed hunting. Remember that these historic food forests present a greater number of species diversity relative to their periphery forests, which is the result of intentional indigenous stewardship, and also provided the extra advantage of attracting wild game to the area, further securing food supply. In turn, these animals ate some of the crops and created local seed dispersion of these cultivars, so it was actually a cross-species effort in expanding the food forest. Indigenous food forests can be found all over the world, from the Amazon in Brazil to Mexico, India, Vietnam, Zambia, Nepal, Zimbabwe, Sri Lanka, Belize, Indonesia, the Pacific Northwest of the United States and British Columbia, and Morocco, just to name a few. Food forests are one important way that we can understand the role of indigenous land management and support ecological resilience. 
In many of the historic examples, recent research confirms that indigenous people around the world were performing intricate geospecific forms of polyculture agroforestry. A recent study of the Amazon rainforest shows that it is largely human-made through forest enrichment, fire and water management, and a mixture of perennial and annual crop cultivation. In this way, people have been creating food security in the Amazon for the past 4,500 years and probably even longer. A similar story is found in Morocco's food forest, which is 65 acres and at least 2,000 years old. The longevity of these systems alone is enough to make you reverent. So why build a food forest? There are many advantages to building such a forest. Once established, the ecosystem self-regulates and self-manages with much less intervention than you would see from conventional agriculture, such as tilling and weeding and spraying, the use of electronic machinery. It uses the traditional forest as a model for ecological success, while bringing in more edible plants or plants that are useful for other things like building materials or firewood. In addition to efficiency of maintenance, it also saves water, provides cooling shade, and encourages biodiversity. Historic indigenous food forest gardens tended to have an abundance of shade-tolerant perennial fruit and nut trees and shrubs, and these plants tend to have more consistent reproductive success, as well as better tolerance to stressful conditions. The shade tolerance also aids in creating multiple heights and garden layers. This maximizes vertical space and allows for a great diversity of plants to exist in smaller spaces or near a village. Now let's talk about why food forests are more secure than orchards. Planting an orchard or buying land with an orchard already on it seems like you're on your way to a food forest. Keep in mind that a single species or a few species of trees in a traditional orchard can attract pests and disease that decimate the trees or require invasive and costly treatment. Orchards are also missing the component of layering the canopy and making good use of vertical space on your site. Orchards will tend to become depleted of soil nutrients after years of harvesting. So how can we modify the orchard to create a food forest through layering and species diversity? The goal is to not only increase the orchard yield, but to also create value out of everything else in the integrated system and increase the long-term stability of the system. By adding in perennial herbs, useful ground covers, shrubs and flowers, you not only ensure the health of the orchard, but also build something entirely more food secure and unique. How much land is needed for a food forest? One beautiful thing about this design is that it can be scaled up or down to any amount of land or space. It's important to remember that as the food forest grows, so will you, and it's okay to start with manageable and attainable goals rather than being too ambitious in your original design. The design is likely to continue unfolding as you interact with it. More than thinking about the size of the land, observe the land you have access to and try to learn more about the climate, the soil, how water moves through the system, and how you intend to make the space more of a habitat. In general, to create a food forest that is focused on local sovereignty, aim for 0.2 hectares or half an acre of land. This is more than enough space to incorporate all of the canopy layers with plenty of ground space for annuals and flowers. Remember that a site analysis is important because it gives you a better idea of what the land can handle in the first phase of your design. 
once you get the system functioning, it'll be, you know, a lot easier to integrate more of your ideas in the future as the foundational structure will be there to support your new plants to thrive. The most exciting part about all of this is that we have evidence that food forests are resilient and that they can last for decades or even centuries with or without our continued love and care. Learning from traditional forests. A traditional forest consists of several layers. In permaculture design, we use the traditional forest as a model for our interventions. You can learn more about this in episode 44, Permaculture Zones and How to Use Them. The layers are typically canopy, the tallest layer, the understory trees below that, then shrubs and herbs, and then the floor layer, which is comprised of mosses, grasses, leaf matter, topsoil containing worms and insects, mushrooms and mycelium, and a complex number of microbial communities below the surface. Here's how permaculture encourages food forests by design. In the construction of a food forest, you'll want to incorporate these vertical layering techniques to make the most of your space and to create the most resilient system. In a food forest, the tallest layer or canopy layer will likely be taller fruit and nut trees. Remember that some trees will need multiple trees of the same species nearby in order to be pollinated, so research on the specifics for your needs and your climate is really important. They'll also need to be spaced properly so they can get enough sunlight and grow into their mature form. The understory layer is made up of dwarf or smaller fruit trees, or perhaps younger trees that will eventually become a part of the canopy, which could take a decade or longer. The shrub layer is typically made up of berry bushes, and the herbaceous layer should mainly be perennial herbs that will take little maintenance, can be harvested liberally, and still return the following year. Your annual plants garden, whether that's in ground or in a raised bed where you plant new seeds or starter plants each year, can also be a part of the herbaceous layer. Edible ground covers can be explored, such as strawberries. And lastly, you'll want to incorporate in vertically growing vines, either on other trees or on trellises, like grapes or annuals like cucumbers and squashes. And if you enjoy root vegetables, they need to be placed away from your shrubs on the ground layer, where you'll have space to uproot them when it's time to harvest them. And these would be like your onions, garlic, potatoes, cassava, yucca, and others. Now I'm going to go over a step-by-step guide to creating a food forest. Step one is to make a plan and a design. Step one is to plan as much as you can before you start investing your time and money into creating. You'll want to start exploring opening questions such as, what is the purpose of this food forest? How much food am I looking to provide and for who? These questions will help you determine what kinds of foods and other materials you plan to grow in your forest. It doesn't hurt to open up your cold storage, refrigerator, and pantry to observe what kinds of foods, herbs, and spices that you frequent. Always prioritize the foods that you already gravitate towards and enjoy as staples of your diet. Understanding your growing goals will help you design to maximize what your climate provides for you, as this will also help you decide what to grow in the food forest or what types of modifications, such as greenhousing or shade, that may expand the diversity of what you're able to grow on your site. Spend time observing the climate, the changes in the seasons, the humidity, and the temperature. The actual food forest is going to be somewhere in between what you envision and what vegetation is going to do well in your climate. 
you do not always want to be fighting the climate and the weather, so you need to make appropriate choices. And connected to this idea is understanding your water sources, how to reuse water on your site, and how much groundwater you'll need to water your trees appropriately. In a food forest, we're always trying to slow the flow of water so that it can spread and sink into the land. You can also make gravity-fed pond systems and diversion drains to help distribute water around your site. And undoubtedly, there are other features that you'll want to include, like beehives, chicken coops, rabbit hutches, or aquaculture ponds and other water features. Maybe you want to design a space for a plant nursery, a wood shop for construction, a workstation for harvesting and cleaning your produce, or simply more rest and relaxation areas throughout the site. You also need to start making decisions about protecting your space from humans or animals, how it will welcome local wildlife or be a safe haven for them. This will depend on your goals and needs and will change with time and observation of the land. Additionally, your design will thrive off flexibility and change as you go on to observe and care for that site. The trees you plant tomorrow will need a decade or more to reach maturity, so you can start out by planting sun-loving plants where there are patches of sunlight, and then you can gradually replace those plants with more shade-tolerant species as your site develops a canopy over the years. You'll also want to have a sense of your personal management style. For accessibility, it may make sense to prune trees in order to more easily access the fruits, or to increase shade and increase yields, it may make more sense to actually let those trees grow to a point where that fruit is out of reach. So there's all these different decisions that you need to make. Buying seedlings will be more expensive, but it will help you reach your goal faster. Or you can start from seed, which is going to be slower, but much cheaper. The next step is observing and choosing a location and mapping your design. So choosing a location is the foundation to your design. You need to decide where you're going to locate your food forest. Ideally, the food forest is located close to where you live, so you can visit it frequently. And even if you have a yard, even if it's just a front yard, you can still apply the principles of building a food forest to that site by scaling down and focusing on a few important cultivars to you. An open area that can get plenty of sunshine and is close to a water source is the only thing that you really need to get started. And choosing the area is one thing, but always remember to remain flexible through the power of observation and reasoning. The best idea is to spend several months observing a site, but even if you need to move faster than that, take notes on how water, plants, and wildlife are interacting with your site. Pay special attention to how slope and gravity is affecting the flow and the pooling of water. To get a better sense of this, part of the process, I guess, I recommend you can go back to episode 44 and you can look more deeply at the zones and sectors so you can learn more about mapping and how to figure out where the most advantageous place is for each cultivar that you're planning on growing and some of the other elements that are at play. And there are a few general layouts for your food forest depending on the site. Um, Savanna-type systems use row crops and silvopasture systems. Whereas orchard-type systems, which are more like woodlands with regularly spaced trees, uh, and mid to late succession woodlands, which is what our goal is. Um, and then, of course, the closed canopy forest is the end point of succession or when you're at the point of a mature forest. So the savanna-type agroforestry or silvopasture systems, they're using a key-line design that's geared more towards commercial production and efficiency. 
an orchard woodland is going to be more mixed use. It could have some commercial components like equally spaced rows, but mid to late succession woodlands are going to have lots of variation in terms of the species and how the farm is laid out. So which type of system that you're starting with will affect how you choose to build, what your plant guilds are, and how you create an area where plants can mutually support each other. So you can construct your plant guilds slowly by creating a spreadsheet, doing research, and looking at places with a similar latitude as your site, um, and to also go on walks in your area to observe what nature is doing and what's around you. Step three is building your nursery, compost, or chicken coop. So one of the underrated steps to being successful with your long-term design plans is to build a small nursery. In other words, a place for planting seeds, monitoring young vulnerable plants and trees, and for pots and seed trays. So in order to get your plants from juveniles to strong, successful plants in your forest, you'll appreciate having the space. And this is like, even if it's as simple as just having a small covered area on your site that's protected from the wind and the rain. Another early step to consider is how are you going to build soil? Much of the earth's soil has been depleted for various reasons, and you'll definitely need a place to make soil to have available in your nursery and to continue fertilizing your plants and your young trees in your system. Humans can be the primary composters by creating a compost bin system, but this takes lots of time and effort for a human to accomplish. And this is why the lovely presence of animals in your system can help accelerate the amount of soil that you're able to build over time. The least amount of investment in this endeavor would be something like a vermicompost worm bin where your home food scraps are then eaten and processed into soil by earthworms and then made into nutritious soil for your plants. But another way to do this is to have a chicken coop or a rabbit hutch where the animals eat your food scraps, they make fresh manure, and that eventually becomes compost that feeds your plants. So instead of doing the heavy lifting of digging and composting, the animals actually perform this for you. And in addition, they make other useful outputs like eggs. So they can free range on your land after you've finished harvesting and as you rotate crops. So they also provide pest control and scratching up the soil surface, keep turning over new soil. So in turn, you'll be responsible for a little bit more, such as the protection of your creatures and making sure they're healthy and that they're cared for. So it's all about where you want to put your energy and what types of outputs you want from your system. But animals are great when you're first getting started, actually. And when you're seeking lots of fresh and quick-made compost, they can make your life a lot easier. Step four is preparing the soil. So preparing the soil before planting is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure the success of the food forest. And this is why steps one through three are so important. Uh, and a lot of times when people talk about building food for us, they kind of skip over steps one, two, and three. So the initial investment in the setup, in my opinion, will make it so much easier to implement your plan and your young vulnerable trees will be less susceptible to failing. And then the first fruits that you receive are going to be full of nutrition. So all in all, it just makes sense to start from the beginning. And during your observation stage, this is when you would want to do a home soil test or even a lab soil test to figure out the components and the pH of your soil. Low pH is an issue because it stops important nutrients from becoming bioavailable to a plant. Remember that it's the microbes in the soil that are self-regulating soil pH from place to place on your site and even around each root ball of each tree. 
So by helping to change the microbial components, that's how you actually change the pH and you allow for the plant to gain access to the minerals that are already there. And if you have ample time to prepare your site, you may want to consider cover crops, which are sometimes called nitrogen-fixing ground covers, such as lupins, yarrow, hairy vetch, mustard seed, legumes, red and white clovers, ryegrass, chicory, and buckwheat, which act as preparers of the soil, bringing out nutrition by adding nitrogen, pulling up soil minerals, and helping to stabilize erosion. And they also help increase phosphorus and potassium, which help the plant grow, they help the plant fruit, and also protect it from disease. So these crops will eventually be replaced with the productive cultivars that you want to grow in your forest. So depending on how long you want to wait, small shrubs may be considered at this stage too that will help fruit trees get established before being removed later on. So you can also consider at this time the sheet mulch method where you begin preparing your site by covering it with cardboard, then manure and grass clippings and wood chips. And eventually you even can cover them with a row cover or a tarp and you allow them to decompose uh, over time. And this is going to suppress any weeds that were on the site and also encourages microbes and worms to come to the area, which improves the soil quality before doing any planting. The larger the area, the more difficult it's going to be to implement a sheet mulch method, uh, in which case cover crops make more sense if you have acres and acres of land. But you can also amend the soil with nutrients that are depleted after doing a soil test or by integrating biochar or compost or regular compost tea and worm castings to your site. So if you're starting with a barren site, anywhere you see soil exposed, that's where you want to cover those areas in some way, shape, or form, anywhere you see barren ground. Coverage from the elements alone can make the soil more hospitable for plants. If you're retrofitting from an existing site, you want to work with the landscape, use what's around you to prepare the soil. And the thing about building soil is that once you start, it never really stops. So the process is going to be different for everyone, but make sure to always keep it in the forefront of your mind that, you know, you may be planting a tree, but you want to give it the best soil home possible in order to ensure its long-term success. And it's useful to know the basics of what each tree in your system is going to prefer in terms of soil. So citrus needs organic matter and mulch to keep their roots constantly wet, which is why they're going to struggle in sandy soil. And certain trees like avocado can't handle wet winter soil, so poorly drained clay loam would need to be significantly altered in order to support an avocado tree properly. So you can find information about the appropriate rootstock for your soil before cultivating or purchasing a tree. And knowing the basics of your site, which may have several different types of soil on one site, is important to choosing the right plants, especially in the beginning. Step five is planting the canopy layer. So finally, we get to the fun part, which is actually planting the trees. So the first layer that you're going to design from is your future canopy layer, or the tallest trees in your system. And this is going to be the taller fruit and nut trees like chestnuts, walnuts, and pecans, or oak and pine for timber. You'll want to refer to your map of zones and sectors to understand which trees are going to go where and what other considerations that those trees need, like adequate spacing, receiving enough sunlight during the changing seasons, 
and whether you need multiples of each type of that tree for pollination. Remember that they are fragile in their earliest stages, so you'll want to prepare the soil and the surrounding area with other plants to strengthen them. During the winter, you may want to acquire the bare root form of the plant, which is without soil or a pot, and that root is ready for planting in the spring. Now, trees should be planted in early spring when they're still dormant, but the soil is soft and workable. You don't need to plant a huge hole. It should be just deep enough to fit the size of the roots. And at this time, you can choose to colonize those roots of the trees with mycorrhiza fungi by dusting the spore powder over the roots, and this will decrease transplant stress. Also pay close attention to the slope of the land where you're planting. Water will always run from a high place to a low place. So building a small berm, like a wall with existing soil on the bottom slope of where you're placing your tree in the ground will help retain water as the tree is getting its roots established. After the tree is in place, replace the soil that you moved back over the root ball, cover with compost, and then top it with wood chips. Press down gently on the soil surface, which is going to stimulate capillary action and water thoroughly. This step is very important because you don't want there to be pockets of air in the soil when you first plant that, that tree. The roots should make direct contact with the soil in order to start the process of sucking up the water and nutrients. So the soil will build its own aerated web as it becomes established. So don't worry about like compaction or packing it in. You really want, actually you want the root to be touching the soil directly because that's how it's going to get its process started of connection with the soil. Once your tree is put to bed in their soil, you can also plant shallow rooted cover crops around the base of the tree to help get the tree established and help retain water. Comfrey is a favorite for this because of how high in potassium it is, acting as an immune protector, as well as its ability to pull up minerals while suppressing other grasses. Seaweed will also act as a potassium and mineral amendment. So it's worth it to add wooden stakes and a ribbon to hold the tree in place during periods of strong winds as well uh, because it can disrupt the young tree's root system, pulling the roots out from where they're trying to get established and kill a, a young tree unexpectedly. And another common mistake with larger trees is spacing them too close together, where eventually the crown of their canopy begins to interlock with one another. And this causes stress to the tree, and it completely shades out the lower understory plants, which we don't want. The understory should be receiving some sunlight. So each tree is going to need about 50% more distance apart than recommended if you want to decrease plant competition and let in sunlight to the lower layers of your system. So you're going to have to actually go against what conventional um, agriculture is going to tell you in terms of spacing. You're going to want more space between those trees. And another important element to consider is the shade that those trees will cast on smaller juvenile trees in the system. So if you're in the northern hemisphere, the tallest canopy plants should be planted on the northern side of your site with the progressively smaller plants going towards the southern end. And the taller plants will cast their shade off the site, allowing the smaller trees to get more sun. And so the opposite would be true if you are in the southern hemisphere. Step six is planting the understory and shrub layers. You may have a site small enough where you skip the canopy layer, 
And if you planted a canopy layer, you can wait just a short time after planting that canopy layer and begin planting your understory and shrub layers. And these are going to be made up of bushes and dwarf trees. Understory plants include most fruit trees like apple, apricot, cherry, stone fruits, pears, citrus, persimmon, pawpaw, black mulberry, and the shrub layer can consist of raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, currants, gooseberries, service berries, huckleberries, sea buckthorn, lavage, honeyberries, sea berries, elderberries, goji, witch hazel, hawthorn, and many others. There's so many berries. Um, they, they do well on perimeters and in the gaps between the upper canopy where sunlight is still going to be able to reach them. And these plants can have thorns and will need conscious management to keep them in place where you design them to be because they tend to have underground runner shoots that will spring up in other places and they can be planted in late spring or early fall. And if you choose to plant the canopy and understory in the same season, Consider being diligent about adding compost and compost tea to your site regularly as at the beginning they'll be competing for nutrients on the same soil layer level and, uh, and also competing for water until the taller trees uh, go down and create deeper roots. Next is the seventh step, which is planting the herbaceous layers. So the next layer down is the perennial herb layer, and this is going to depend on what space you've got. Uh, available for this layer. Herbs are diverse and they run the gamut of full sunshine to full shade. And there are culinary herbs and spices, there's medicinal herbs, topical herbs, and then there's herbs for symbolic, cultural, and ritual purposes. So the herbs that you choose to grow are like an intimate story about who you are and what you need around you to make you feel safe and supported. So just like the mycelium and trees begin to form bonds, your herbaceous layer may be some of the loudest plants talking to you in your garden. And honoring them is important. Perennial herbs are the best choice for your layer to get you started and get the system going, but there's plenty of annuals that will self-seed in the same spot if you give them the right conditions. Rosemary, thyme, oregano, lemon balm, lavender, mint, walking onion, chives, and sage are typical perennials, but there are other perennial vegetables as well for this layer like rhubarb or asparagus, tree collards, and even artichokes fall into this category. And a typical gardener's advice may be to pot certain herbs because they're going to have a tendency to get out of control, like mint being one example. But in the food forest mindset, it's actually okay you can plant mint near a drain pipe because maybe it likes the extra water and just allowing it to spread where it wants to go in the unoccupied terrain in a food forest situation is, is, you know, welcomed. So in contrast, the uh, desert herbs will enjoy the driest parts of your site. So you can use your senses and just try to understand where does this herb want to be? You know, where is this herb from? You know, what, what region is this herb from and what does it enjoy? And then kind of place your herbs based on, on your knowledge of the herb. And so herbs should be planted typically in the late spring and after the last frost. Step eight is planting ground covers, vining plants, and root crops. So that's the last level here, uh, which is for ground covers. And there are so many ground covers to choose from. And some of my favorites are edibles like watercress, sorrel, nasturtiums, wintergreen, creeping rosemary, strawberries, lettuces and spinach, or you can go the route of root crops like sweet potatoes, 
Mashua or Yakon, which are, all have edible leaves. They're all root crops with edible leaves. So here's where you can also work in beans and peas because they enjoy some shade as well. And there are other root crops and squashes that don't have edible leaves but provide plenty of ground cover shade and produce lots of fruits. So if you have vining plants uh, planned in your system, you might want to consider fencing, trellises, or arbors to train them on. And vines would include species like kiwi or the kolomitka kiwi, which is the most shade-tolerant kiwi, uh, the chayote, ground nuts, hops, uh, passion fruit, or even loofahs. So plant your ground covers in late spring or periodically after the last frost has passed, and the same for your vining plants. Step nine is applying mulch. Mulch is one of my favorite topics. Uh, wood chips or mulch and ground covers serve the purpose of shading the soil, which retains moisture and prevents evaporation. They also keep the soil temperatures cool so that the roots can keep doing their jobs in hot weather. And ironically, they also insulate the roots to prevent freezing in super cold weather. So mulch and ground covers decay and release more nutrients into the soil right in the area where your tree needs them at the root ball. So mulch is just so important and one of the you know, parts that we already discussed earlier, which is that the soil should always be covered with something. But the other reason is because food forests really should contain fungal dominated soils over that of bacteria. Nitrogen fixing legumes have a stronger, happier relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. So first you want cover crops with something like red or crimson clover, and then spread woody mulch everywhere you can to help encourage mycorrhizal relationships to form. Conifer trees and black walnut trees both contain phytochemicals that hinder fruit tree growth. So you need to try to figure out the source of your wood chips. You want to get wood chips from healthy, chipped, deciduous trees. Pathogens can spread from dead tree wood through mulching. So you want to make sure that your mulch source or wood chip source, uh, even if you just chip it yourself, um, is a good quality source. And step 10 is using available water resources wisely. Now, if you've been following my podcast for a while, you probably know that the core of any growing system is access to water. So I hope you've been thinking about water from the very start of making your design. But you can go back to episode 40, Intro to Water Harvesting, if you want to learn more. Now that you've built the skeleton of your food forest and it's starting to fill itself out, it's a good time to think about how to use your available water resources more effectively to minimize cost and to conserve water. Water systems may be centralized, like from a main source, or decentralized, such as having a water catchment system, maybe several small water catchments on different outbuildings or different parts of the farm. Think about the ways that you can reroute and reuse water how you can create berms to slow the flow of water from a high place to a low place, and how you can retrofit your buildings to send gray water and even black water directly into your food forest system. So handling water is not only about observation of the land you're working with, but to also juggle a lot of design elements and deal with a number of practical and sometimes even legal issues. Keep in mind that any roads or paths that you build will also act like a funnel for water and use that to your advantage when designing your system. At this time, you may consider building or expanding some form of drip irrigation if it makes sense for your space. 
And remember that you want to minimize the amount of maintenance involved and maximize your productivity. So don't run your drip irrigation during a hot summer day. Instead, put it on a timer and run it in the cool evening. So by thinking about how to keep water in your system in its place of highest potential, that is the highest points on your site, you can improve the resilience of your food forest and will have to rely less on outside inputs during periods of drought. Now I want to talk about how to use fungi to help with succession. Fungi strongly affect ecological succession. In this way, mushrooms are their own layer in the food forest. In building a food forest, it makes a lot of sense to have an ally that can positively impact so many different parts of your system. In addition to the mycelial layer performing important functions in nutrient and water transport, as well as protection against pathogens, fungi come in many nutritious edible varieties. Oysters, shiitake, and wine caps are favorites that can be easily integrated into your food forest plan and will return seasonally. And for the more advanced, morel, reishi, and lion's mane are other possibilities that you can build in and they're going to return year after year. And another technique that I wanted to mention that's super useful for food forests is chop and drop. So now that your system is vegetating and making uh, above ground plant matter, chop and drop is one way to help you build soil quickly, keep the land always covered, and keep your food forest somewhat manicured. Leaves and stems can be chopped and literally dropped to the ground in order to create decomposing green mulch. This attracts earthworms, other insects, good bacteria and fungi, which all contribute to building healthy and resilient soil. Chop and drop is mostly referring to green leaf matter, but if you have access to a wood chipper, you can take all of your hard prunings and wood and make chips to cover your land with or create deep bedding for your chickens. I of course wanted to cover the costs of starting a food forest because when I first started farming, I was doing it without any disposable funds and was using a lot of upcycled materials and growing in pots. So um, ideally we want to keep costs low at all times and this is going to depend on a bunch of different factors like the size of your land and your land use goals. but. Realistically, it could be anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, depending on how you want to acquire your trees and how much land prep is required to get the system to be functional. A couple ways to reduce costs are to first construct a shaded area that could just be a tarp for a tree nursery, and this is where you can get plants started from seed, or you can regenerate plants from branches of an existing tree that you find. You can also protect yourself from investment losses by doing proper research on the fruit tree varieties that will enjoy your climate and soil. You can start a compost to help these young vulnerable nursery plants thrive or create compost tea for them to drink. And if possible, you can save your sink water or reroute gray water from your home to a tank that then feeds to your plants. Another good source for healthy young trees are plant festivals where nurseries come to sell their young trees but beware of buying trees from big industrial hardware stores as they may be more susceptible to disease and then you can go and spread that to your other plants in your nursery or in your food forest system. So always quarantine new plants or assess them for health before purchasing. Now, if you're first starting to explore searching for property to create a food forest or if you have an existing site that you want to transform into a food forest, always start with a base map. 
you can find a map by just using Google Earth and delineating the bounds of the property. And this is a sample checklist that I've created for you to begin observing your site. So this is the food forest site survey checklist. For climate, plant hardiness zone to help with species selection, average annual precipitation and seasonal distribution, winter and summer prevailing winds, and average number of sunny days for each month. For land, topographic positions such as hilltops, mid slopes, and valleys, elevation, slope across your site, aspect or orientation of the slope. For water, water sources on site, wet spots or spots that gather water naturally on the land, drainage patterns, driest areas on the site. For infrastructure, where are the buildings located? Where are the roads and access points? Where are the fences located, if any? And other site-specific structures like wells, power lines, underground pipes, and septic tanks. After you've filled out your checklist, use your base map and the principles of zones and sectors to start brainstorming your food forest. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode on food forests. They're probably the most ancient form of farming on the planet and part of a tradition going back thousands of years in the human tradition. So they evoke a completely different emotional feeling than a garden as well. If you've ever experienced one, there's just something about being able to see the lushness, what's overgrown and intertwined elements and the sounds of the birds and the insects. It really makes you feel like you've entered an oasis, like you're having an experience. And even if you yourself never make a food forest, maybe sometime in the future you'll sit in a food forest that someone in the past or present has made and will be able to recognize the love and care that went into making it. And I also find the topic of food forests generally helpful for new gardeners who are learning about the power of observation, along with the importance of interrelationships. So these concepts are metaphors for more than just food production. They contain information about building community and building culture. And this is what makes them such a compelling form of design as they can be used to build more intentional villages. And that's something that I think a lot of us are interested in. And just as our village is comprised of people who share our values, we wanna take that same approach to being a steward of the land. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know what you think of the show. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you info on backyard food production and sustainable living. If you enjoyed this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 55 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.